Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion stops here. Well, I predicted on this program last week, one week ago today, that today, the day after the election, we would still not know who is the President of the United States, who won the presidency. And uh, i got to tell you, I'm tired of being right. (laughs) But I want to put things in perspective a little bit, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to open the show today. Uh, Because whatever the eventual outcome, there's some things we need to remember. And so what I'd like to do is actually start by reading a post that I posted on my blog in November of 2012, after President Obama won re-election against all hopes. Uh, And here's what I wrote, quote, Put not your trust in princes, in the children of men in whom there is no salvation. That's Psalm 145. Many Catholics are frustrated with the outcome of the 2012 presidential election. Many of them fear this is the end of American life as we once knew it. But even if they are right, this is not a cause for despair. Jesus promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church and that he will be with us all days to the end of the world. Our American founding fathers were given no such divine promise regarding our country. Fifty or a hundred years from now, there may well be no United States of America, at least not one we would recognize. But there will be a Catholic Church. In 2010, Francis Cardinal George of Chicago predicted, I expect to die in my bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. His successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization, as the Church has done so often in human history. We have the promise of Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. This promise was not made to the United States or to democracy or to family values, but to the Catholic Church, because it's the church that communicates the saving grace of Christ to our fallen world. And the Catholic Church has outlived every evil empire and endured every persecution devised by wicked men and fallen angels for two millennia. It is a well-known fact of history that the church grows stronger when she is persecuted, even when she is reduced to a remnant. The word of God tells us not to put our trust in human leaders. Politics will not save the world. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And he does it through his body, the church, throughout all ages until he comes again in glory. Close quote. So, dear friend, let us and all good Catholics everywhere focus our prayers and energies on the restoration of the Church and not place our faith in political or material solutions. Come what may, let us work for the restoration of the Catholic Church in the same way that we await our Lord Jesus Christ's return, not in fear, not in despair, but with joyful hope. The other thing that I would say, I was on the Terry and Jesse show just a few minutes ago, putting in my two cents about uh, current events, and uh, the thing that I mentioned was what I talked about last week, was the importance of Catholics who have the right to vote to exercise it, because we also have a duty to vote. Because even if our guy doesn't win, and that's not, a, that's not an entirely foregone conclusion, by the way, but uh, even if they should give the election to Mr. Biden, the fact that so many people... Uh, cast their vote for Donald Trump, at least narrowed the margin of his defeat. 
there was no, this wasn't a, a landslide. It was, it was, you know, if Biden gets in, it will be by the tiniest of margins. There was no blue wave. There was no referendum on uh, the American system here. Not only did the Republicans retain the Senate, they actually picked up houses, or picked up seats, rather, in the House. So there's plenty to be thankful for today. And we keep working and we keep praying, and most especially for Holy Mother Church. Okay, enough of that. Um, this last weekend, we had a great feast of All Saints and also the uh, All Souls Day, right? And during, during the centuries of persecution of the early church, there were many, many uh, Christians were martyred, of course. And the church has always honored uh, those who gave their lives for the faith. When Holy Mass had to be celebrated uh, underground in the catacombs, the tombs of the martyrs would serve as altars for the Eucharist. And to this day, uh, the altar of every Catholic church uh, contains a relic of a saint. But so many holy men and women um, were martyred in the early church that there were soon not enough days in the year to commemorate them all. And so the church instituted the Feast of All Saints to pray, uh, to pay honor to those in heaven. Uh, who do not have a you know their own feast day in the liturgical calendar, and that includes all the saints, all the uh, saints in heaven, including um, you know those that have not been canonized by the church, including you know members of your own family, for instance. So on All Saints Day we give honor uh, to the Church triumphant, but on All Souls Day then that was instituted by the church to remind us to pray for the church suffering, for the faithful departed in purgatory. And it just so happens that both of these topics are the target of some pretty formidable Catholic kryptonite, which, as you may recall, is our term for arguments against Catholic beliefs for which most Catholics have no ready answer. So in regard to prayer to the saints, you know, our our Bible-only friends will ask, why do Catholics pray to Mary and the saints when the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, uh, Christ Jesus? Well, when Catholics pray to Mary and the other saints in heaven, they're not bypassing Christ, whom we certainly acknowledge as the sole mediator between God and man. On the contrary, we are going to Christ through Mary and the other saints. How? Well, by asking Mary and the saints in heaven to intercede for us with Christ. You know, we read in uh, sacred scripture that St. Paul asked his fellow Christians to intercede for him. Brothers, pray for us, he says in 2 Thessalonians. And again, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Holy Spirit to join me in the struggle by your prayers to God on my behalf. That's Romans 15. St. James says the prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is very powerful. James 5.16. Now, if that's true, how very powerful indeed must be the prayers of our, uh, the mother of our Lord and the saints in heaven. You know, at the wedding at Cana, Jesus performed his first miracle by virtue of the intercession of his blessed mother. So, and it's also clear in the book of Revelation that the saints in heaven will intercede for us with their prayers. Revelation 8, 3 and 4 says, An angel came forward with a gold censer and stood at the altar. He was given a large quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar that stood before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. It's also very clear from the records of primitive Christianity that the first Christians very eagerly sought the intercession of the saints. Back in the 4th century, St. John Chrysostom 
wrote, uh, when you perceive that God is chastening you, fly not to his enemies, but to his friends, the martyrs, the saints, and those who are pleasing to him, and who have great power. So if the saints have that kind of power with God, how much more his own blessed mother? But they may say, what about prayers for the dead? What about purgatory? The word purgatory is not even in the Bible. Well, again, the book of Revelation in chapter 21 makes it clear, nothing unclean will enter heaven. But how many of us die in a state of spiritual perfection? Scripture and tradition teach there's punishment due for sins. Eternal punishment for mortal sins and temporal punishment for venial sins. The sacrament of penance remits the guilt of sin and the eternal punishment for mortal sin, but not all of the temporal punishment that is due for our sins, mortal and venial. That temporal punishment due for sin can be satisfied in this life by good works, right? For example, assisting at Mass and receiving the sacraments, almsgiving, prayer, corporal and spiritual works of mercy, the kind of penance that you're given by the priest. But after death, any remaining uh, temporal punishment can be satisfied in purgatory. Catholic Christians have always believed in the existence of a place between heaven and hell where souls go to be punished for lesser sins and repay the debt of temporal punishment for sins already forgiven. And we can help the holy souls remit their debt of punishment with our prayers and sacrifices. And it's true that the word purgatory is not in the Bible. Uh, like the word Trinity, for example, or incarnation. For that matter, the word Bible. Obviously, all Christians believe in concepts and doctrines that are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture. So that's, that's your argument for any times anybody brings up that word's not in the Bible. But uh, regarding purgatory, the Bible does show uh, that there's a process by which lesser sins are purged away and the soul is saved. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. So we get the image of the flames of purgatory. The book of Hebrews distinguishes between those who go straight to heaven, referring to them as the church of the firstborn, and those who will only enter after undergoing purification, the spirits of the just made perfect. And of course, we read in the Old Testament uh, second book of Maccabees, It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from their sins. Now, that's a clear reference of prayer for the dead in sacred scripture, which, of course, might shed some light on why Martin Luther and some of the other reformers who denied the doctrine of purgatory wanted to delete the book of Maccabees from their Protestant Bibles, and in fact did delete the book of Maccabees and other Old Testament books from their Bibles. In any case, for 1,500 years, all Christians everywhere considered these verses, biblical references to purgatory, and the majority of Christians still do. And, uh, you know, as long as we're talking about purgatory, we should probably mention indulgences. I see we're getting close here time-wise, so I think I'll probably save that for the next segment. But just, I'll say this, that an indulgence is the remission in whole or in part for the temporal punishment due for venial sins and mortal sins that have been absolved in the sacrament of penance. So, uh, punishment for Lesser sins, uh, due for lesser sins, or grave sins that have already been forgiven. In other words, purgatory is not a second chance to uh, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior uh, the way we did, as some of these folks would contend. All right, back with a lot more when we return to Virgin Most Powerful Radio right after this.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Jesus said to the apostles in Luke chapter 10, Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me. According to St. Boniface, in her voyage across the ocean of this world, the church is like a great ship being pounded by the waves of life's different stresses. Our duty is not to abandon ship, but to keep her on course. May our Lord help us remain ever faithful to his church to aid and defend her. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you with us. By the way, a little later on, we're going to be talking about some lessons that we can learn from the biblical account of the Tower of Babel and also... If you are a Catholic who assists at the Novus Ordo Mass, at the ordinary form of the Mass, and be talking about why you will not be celebrating the Feast of Christ the King this year. What do I mean by that? Well, you have to stay tuned and find out. Now, in the meantime, we were talking about uh, indulgences. And uh, because we were talking about purgatory, well, I should tell you that an indulgence is a way... um, to apply either to yourself or to the souls in purgatory um, the remission of some of the temporal punishment due for your sins. You know, sins are already forgiven, mortal sins have been forgiven, or venial sins. Now, a plenary indulgence is the full remission of the temporal punishment due for our sins, and a partial indulgence is the remission of a part of the temporal punishment due for our sins. And Jesus, of course, conferred the power to grant indulgences upon the church when he said to Peter, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He tells him explicitly, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the church grants indulgences from the great treasury of the infinite merits of 
Jesus Christ and the superabundant merits of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints. So to gain an indulgence, there's some things that are necessary. You have to be in a state of grace, a state of sanctifying grace. You have to make the intention to gain the indulgence, and you have to fulfill the prescribed conditions. That's usually, you know, saying certain prayers or performing certain penitential acts. And all Catholics in a state of grace can gain indulgences, as I said, either for themselves or for the poor souls in purgatory. So a uh, quick catechesis on indulgences and... Uh, prayer for the dead, and prayer to the saints, all in the, just the first 15 minutes here. <laughs> okay, you know, last April, I, I think it was in April that we started this program. I used to do a show called Happy Hour on Fridays, and I wanted to change the focus a little bit. They moved me to the middle of the week, and I changed the name to No Nonsense Catholic. And I decided to break up the program into, you know, two or three or even four featured segments uh, instead of doing, uh, you know, a whole show on one topic. And, and the reason for that decision was twofold. Uh, number one is to keep it interesting and engaging, uh, you know, for me as well as for you, because <laughs> variety is the spice of life. But I also wanted to show that confusion can be cleared up pretty quickly if you're not trying to complicate matters. And while some things are complex and difficult to understand, they don't necessarily have to be the concern of rank-and-file Catholics. For example, there is a place for highly academic Bible study, and that's precisely amongst academics. <laughs> you know, the truth is you don't need to have an advanced degree to have a saving faith. You certainly don't need to be a Bible scholar or an expert theologian to go to heaven. And that's a point that seems to get lost in the shuffle of, of the various modern concerns, especially amongst the leadership of the church today. You know, issues like social justice and immigration and climate change and the, uh, the leadership of women in the church and on and on. When we all know, or should know, salus animarum suprema lex, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. That is what matters most. Jesus came to earth to establish a kingdom, and that kingdom is his one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And his kingdom is not of earthly origin. It comes from heaven. And so King uh, Jesus is a king who didn't conquer territories. He didn't, he didn't conquer lands. Rather, he conquered hearts. He's a king who won victory not by force, but by his cross. And the kingdom of the church is the kingdom of divine truth and grace. It is in the world and for the world, but not of the world, because the object of the church is not a worldly or a natural one, as important as worldly and natural objectives may be. The church's objective, though, is entirely supernatural. It is the salvation and the sanctification of souls. And that's no nonsense. And that's what brings us to our next segment, which I call Get a Word Out. I'm going to turn to the Holy Scripture, this time some lessons from the Tower of Babel. And this comes from uh, Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses. The descendants of Noah soon multiplied and again became as wicked as men had been before the deluge. Now they were unable to live together any longer, and they said, Come, let us make a city and a tower, the top whereof may reach to heaven, and let us make our names famous before we uh, be scattered abroad in all lands. So the descendants of Noah, right? He, the ark landed on Mount Ararat, and they left the mountains of Armenia and dwelled in the large and fruitful plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And, but it says, Scripture says they were unable to live together. And this is because of their increasing numbers and then the increasing tension. Like we read earlier in the book of Genesis of the, uh, 
the uh, trouble between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. And so these people wanted to build a city and a tower, kind of a united kingdom, and, and they, they would have this be the center, right? They're going to they're gonna build a tower to the sky. But God frustrated their foolish design. He said, let us confound their tongue that they may not understand one another's speech. Till then there had been but one language spoken amongst men. So the Lord scattered them from that place into all the lands, and they ceased to build the city. Therefore, the city was called Babel, which signifies confusion, because there the language of the whole earth was confounded. So the story tells us that God introduced various languages among men, that up to that point they had all spoken one language because they were all the children, first of Adam and then of Noah. So in the course of time, you know, with the extension of the human race, the development of the, the different nations and so forth, that one original language would naturally have split into, uh, you know, diverse dialects. Uh, you know, like Latin turned into uh, Spanish and French and uh, uh, Italian and so forth. And, and just the same as uh, the different localities would have brought out, uh, you know, different development in, in the people that settled there. But... The story tells us that in order to punish their presumption and to compel them to disperse, God brought the change about in a sudden manner, a miraculous way, while they were all still together and at work building their tower. They could no longer understand each other and had to give up their undertaking and separate into different bodies. The point of this story is that disunity is the product of human arrogance and pride. That is the root of disunity. So uh, Babel, it was called, amongst the ruins of uh, this once great city, Babel is uh, the place where Babylon then rose up. And, of course, they have the ziggurats, the Babylonian ziggurats, which are these kind of uh, towers that are built up in steps, like, like a lightning bolt shape. And there are some of the remains of them, and one of which may, in fact, be the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Confusion. Now, Scripture goes on to describe the generations of the descendants of the sons of Noah. And the children of Shem remained in Asia, and from them descended the Israelites, uh, the chosen people. And most of the descendants of Ham settled in Africa, while those of Japheth took up their abode in Europe. Right? And so the different nationalities were founded. And the more men multiplied on earth, though, the more wicked they became. And their sins darkened the hearts and minds, and they lost the true knowledge of God and fell into idolatry. They began to worship a multitude of false gods. The thing is, when you give yourself over to your bad passions, you, you, and you're further and further removed from God by sin, you know, it's what happened to them. They lost the knowledge of God and then start to worship creatures instead of the Creator. And that, of course, is called idolatry. Scripture said some worship the sun, moon, and stars, others worship men and beasts, even the works of their own hands. To these false divinities, even human victims were offered, sometimes even innocent children. Scripture says God let them go their own way. And that's the point. Sin grows and grows, and because God gave them over to the desire of their hearts is why they fell into this uh, uh, you know, degraded state. And, and you can look, you know, obviously God warned Adam and Eve about uh, eating the forbidden fruit. When Cain was yielding to the passions of envy and hatred, God didn't go over, give him over to those 
passions unwarned. When the children of Cain, the, the sons of men, uh, Scripture calls them, when they turned away from the true God, God, in his goodness, um, urged them to penance and conversion through the preaching of the prophet Enoch. And then immediately before the, the deluge, before the great flood, he had Noah stand forth and proclaim the punishment that was hanging over mankind. See, each one of these times in the book of Genesis, God warned the sinners. He manifested himself to them. And now when they're building the Tower of Babel and the men fall away from them, even though he doesn't destroy them, he doesn't punish them, he instead just no longer reveals himself to them, but gives them over to the desire of their hearts. Right? Because they forsook God, he forsook them. It's like it says in Judges 10, You have forsaken me and have worshipped strange gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and call upon the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of distress. So the people had to learn from experience just what we come to when God leaves us to our own devices. (laughs) What happens when God just lets us have what we want? And that's what's happening in the Western world right now today. We have turned our backs on Christ. Our culture refuses to recognize our debt to the church, to, to Christianity, for building and sustaining our civilization. And if we don't turn back soon, we, we won't have any civilization to speak of. You know, the history of the Tower of Babel shows us the truth of Psalm 126, verse 1, or Psalm 127 in the New Translations, which is, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. God's blessing is the one thing necessary. We need supernatural and revealed religion. In the millennia after creation, the majority of men fell into idolatry. Now, there were always a few just men and their families who uh, preserved the faith in the true God and, you know, his revelation, Abram and Melchizedek and Job and so on. But the true faith would have been lost even in those families if God had not revealed himself again to them. You know, divine revelation is necessary, or else even man's natural knowledge of God would have been lost. And the men in the time of the Tower of Babel possessed the revealed religion. Noah had faithfully delivered to his descendants the revelation of God that was handed down by Adam. But as men followed their own evil inclinations more and more, their faith became weak, their intellects became darkened. They believed, certainly, but their faith wasn't a living faith. They lived as if there were no God until at last they lost the supernatural gift of faith. Because if you don't behave as you believe, you wind up believing as you behave. Now you might say they they could still have known God by the light of natural reason. I mean, this is what St. Paul said about the Romans in in Romans chapter 1. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse. And if that was true then, it is true today. The question is, what's our excuse? Okay, more about this uh, when we come back. Also going to be talking about um, the Feast of Christ the King and uh, true progress as we uh, continue with No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We'll be back in just a minute. Please stay with us.
great man once said that evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. Well, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose this war, and in so doing lose this great way of freedom of ours, history will report with the greatest astonishment that those that had the most to lose did the least to prevent it from happening. Well, I think it's high time now that we ask ourselves if we still even know the freedoms that were intended for us by our founding fathers. Every generation of Americans needs to know that freedom exists, not to do what you like, but having the right to do what you ought. You weren't made to fit in, my brothers and sisters. You are born to stand out. Set yourself apart from this corrupt generation. Be saints. God bless you. Our nation is too full of those that are crying down. Down with the police. Down with the churches. Down with teachers. Down with government. Can you build anything down? You cannot. Certainly time in our nation to change our words. And let's begin now to use the word up. Up from all of this filth. Up from this violence. Up from this indifference of courts. Up. Up to the hid battlements of eternity. Up. Up to God. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back uh, to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the lessons to learn, be learned from the Tower of Babel. And, you know, like so many modern people, I think the men of those days lost even the natural knowledge of God because their hearts and their wills were so corrupt that they were no longer capable of knowing him. They said to God, as it were, depart from us, for we have no desire to know your ways, like it says in the book of Job. Sin darkens the intellect. It weakens the will. And when people uh, turned their hearts from God, their reason became blinded more and more by their evil passions, and they fell into the utmost spiritual ignorance and in the most foolish idolatry. And so we see that pride and vice still lead many men to unbelief. But with that separation that happened at the Tower of Babel, that was healed. Mankind experienced a reunion in the Catholic Church. People of all tongues gathered together in unity of faith in the Catholic Church, for all Catholics over the whole face of the earth are joined together in one faith, one hope, and one love. Uh, as St. Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The unity of spirit is expressed by the unity of faith 
and formerly, uh, uh, at least, and I would say still partially, by the unity of language in the church. But I'm talking about Latin. You know, John the Twenty Third, the Second Vatican Council, Paul the Sixth, John Paul the Second, Benedict the Sixteenth, all reminded Catholics that we are supposed to know our basic prayers in Latin. So the Pater Noster, the, the Ave Maria, the Gloria Patri, the Credo, all the responses to the common prayers in the ordinary of the, of the Holy Mass, the Sanctus, the Gloria. See, but I'm unaware of any serious attempt at this basic construction uh, in the average parish in the last 50 years. I'll bet that, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> depending upon what mass you go to, you can probably count on one hand the number of Catholics you know that can say those prayers in Latin. But, you know, prior to the council, the, in, in the city of God, which is the Catholic Church, which is governed by the Holy Ghost, you know, the very opposite took place uh, to, to that which took place in, in Babel, which is the city of confusion. Because in Babel, speech was confounded, and they were scattered. But in the church, men of every land and every tongue were gathered together in unity of faith and speech by the Holy Ghost whom Jesus Christ sent on Whit Sunday or Pentecost. You know, on, on Pentecost Sunday, there were gathered together men from all over the, the, the diaspora, all, all different countries, and yet they all understood the speech of the apostles. Scripture says, every man heard them speaking in his own language, which, by the way, is what speaking in tongues really means. And after St. Peter's sermon, some 3,000 of them were baptized. On that day, was you know, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, was built the city that rests upon the earth, but reaches up to heaven. Not through pride, like the Tower of Babel, but through the grace of Christ. A city in which men would come to speak one tongue and have one faith, and with which God was well pleased. This is the Christian city. This is the kingdom of God on earth. This is the Holy Catholic Church. Pardon me, I need to take a little uh, drink here. I got a dry throat. <coughs> Beg your pardon. Today, though, I mean, inexplicably, and against all Catholic tradition, even against the direct teaching of Vatican II, we have all but abandoned the common language of the Church. And after 50 years of the Babel of the New Liturgy, we have prominent Catholics telling us that abortion is a right and that Western civilization is evil. One of them just got re-elected Speaker of the House and another may become President. We even have highly placed clergy telling us that the, 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 the perfect societal model is Communist China or, or the primitive tribes of the Amazon and their, their idolatrous worship of the earth. Which just goes to show you today, as always, when men turn their hearts from God, even princes and politicians and priests and bishops, their reason becomes more and more blinded by their evil passions, and they fall into the utmost spiritual ignorance and into the most foolish idolatry, because pride and vice still lead many men to unbelief. There are on this earth... Right now, still hundreds of millions of heathens who don't know God and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And so right now, I say we must return to the practice of praying earnestly for their conversion. 
Pray for the conversion of non-Catholics. I've got to tell you right now, if you're descended from Europeans or Asians or Africans or, or the indigenous peoples of North or South America, then your forefathers were heathens too. And they were converted by missionaries sent by the Catholic Church. So thank God for your holy faith and confess it by word and deed and pray fervently to God the Holy Ghost to keep you and yours firm in the light of faith so as to be spared the fate of those who are falling backwards into darkness and unbelief. In the 1920s, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? And the problems he identified back then are all back with a vengeance today. Progressivism, socialism, totalitarianism, utopianism. You change a few names and dates, and this book might have well been written yesterday. Now, traditionalists tend to point out to their, you know, tend to point rather to their actual achievements, to what they've done, what they've built. Whereas progressives tend to talk about what they're going to do and how uh, they're not going to fail again this time. You know, as Trump pointed out, progressives have had a century to implement their, their socialist utopia. And Joe Biden personally had been at it for 47 of the last 100 years. And what has he accomplished? Why did he not do before any of the things he is promising to do now? And why would anyone in their right mind think it would be any better the next time around? <clears throat> so here's what G.K. Chesterton said, the apostle of common sense, they call him regarding the modern enthusiasm for the future and for progressivism. He said, The future is a blank wall on which every man can write his own name as large as he likes. The past is already covered with illegible scribbles such as Plato, Isaiah, Shakespeare, Michelangelo, Napoleon. I can make the future as narrow as myself. The past is obliged to be as broad and turbulent as humanity. And the upshot of this modern attitude is really this, that men invent new ideals because they dare not attempt old ideals. They look forward with enthusiasm because they're afraid to look back. Now, I'm a traditional Catholic and a medievalist, and for a number of reasons, not the least of which, that medievals had convictions, whereas modern progressives have only opinions. And as Heinrich Heine said, it takes something more than opinions to build a Gothic cathedral. Now, I actively promote Christian chivalry uh, because I believe that it's possible to cultivate moral virtue even in the hostile environment of our vice-ridden secular society. And I think that the, the universal call to holiness that is the real message of Vatican II, which has been so corrupted by progressivism in the Church, as Pope Leo the Great said, uh, the devil's always discovering something novel against the truth. But, but I believe that the ideal of Christendom will be resurrected in the West precisely through the restoration of the Catholic Church. And I count myself blessed to be able to assist with my family at the traditional Latin Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, at, the, at least, at, at our own parish church. And I would say that the, the spread of, of the celebration of the so-called extraordinary form of the Mass to be among the indisputable signs that the restoration of the Church and the restoration of traditional Catholicism is actually already underway. Uh, I apologize, I'm a little under the weather. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and while all this seems perfectly obvious to me, there's lots of folks out there that find this absolutely incomprehensible. You know, when, when I talk about uh, these things with secular friends, and far, far too many Catholics, 
the common reaction is you can't turn back the clock. They can't, you know, it's impossible to, to restore Christendom because, or, you know, for the church to recover her former prominence because of the inevitability of progress. And that opinion is demonstrably false. The fact that modern secular culture is wallowing in a morass of uh, pornography and adultery and homosexuality and divorce and contraception and abortion and child abuse and human trafficking is clear proof that you can turn back the clock because all of those problems were epidemic in the pagan Roman Empire. Some of them even affirmed as good by the leading intellectuals of the day, just as they are now. And even when Rome fell to the barbarians, it was only the Catholic Church valiantly communicating God's grace to a hostile culture and producing an army of uh, saints in the process that ultimately freed the pagan West from these societal scourges and gave birth to Christendom. Now, the big difference between pagan Rome and our modern secular state is that the ancient pagans didn't have 2,000 years of Christianity to answer to. However, Jesus started his public ministry with the words, repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent literally means to turn back. So today, as always, the solution to our society's problems lies primarily in individual souls turning back to God and his holy Catholic Church in order that she can restore all things in Christ. C.S. Lewis said, we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing it in an about turn. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. Hear the words of our Lord and King. Now is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right. Um, A final word today, and just to lead us into the last segment. I mentioned a week ago that we uh, just celebrated the Feast of Christ the King on the last Sunday of October, those of us who assist at the extraordinary form of the Mass. Now, in Catholic terms, the Feast of Christ the King is still new. I mean, it was only uh, instituted in 1925, less than 100 years ago, in the aftermath of the First World War and the rise of world communism. And so there were specific reasons. But the feast that we celebrate in the Novus Ordo is something different. And we're going to talk about that when we come back. So stay with us right here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. I'm so thankful to have you along with us. So stick around. We'll be right back after this. Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You That's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this, I just want to call all the people, you know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money, and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta. We have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. But everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I love it. Out there. 
Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. According to Pope St. John XXIII, it is not true that some human beings are by nature superior and others inferior. All human beings are equal in their natural dignity. May God help us to look upon everyone as a person created in His image and likeness and treat everyone the same without favoritism or prejudice. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back. You know, um, as we do these programs, I uh, am sitting in the studio with a monitor and my notes here, but I'm not uh, looking at the YouTube feed and understanding the chat. Uh, uh, somebody has requested uh, my 2012 blog article about, uh, you know, what to do in, in the face of the political situation. So, you know what, I'll, uh, I'll arrange to put that up either, uh, probably just in the show notes for today's program, okay? So that'll be there for you if you're interested. Also want to thank, uh, say thank you to Dr. Dunkelweiss for commenting on my voice. I appreciate it, especially since my voice is not in best fettle at this moment. All right, um, <clears throat> to the business at hand, talking about the Feast of Christ the King. Back in 1925, the world was increasingly telling Christians that they have to compartmentalize their religion and give their highest allegiance to the government. And Pope Pius XI wrote to the contrary, quote, if to, our Lord, uh, if to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and earth, if all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief to revealed truths and to the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. See, but there's more to the kingship of Christ than his personal lordship in the life of the individual believer. Pope Pius said, All men, whether collectively or individually, are under the dominion of Christ. In him is the salvation of the individual. In him is the salvation of society. He is the author of happiness and true prosperity for every man and for every nation. If, therefore, the rulers of nations wish to, pre wish to preserve their authority, to promote and increase the prosperity of their countries, they will not neglect the public duty of reverence and obedience to the rule of Christ. When once men recognize both in private and in public life that Christ is king, Society will at last receive the great blessings of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony. That these blessings may be abundant and lasting in Christian society 
it's necessary that the kingship of our Savior should be as widely as possible recognized and understood, and to the end nothing would serve better than the institution of a special feast in honor of Christ the King. So the Feast of Christ the King was a response to the rise of secularization, atheism, and communism in the early 20th century. And then in 1969, Pope Paul VI gave the feast a new name, the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, and moved it from the last Sunday of October to the last Sunday of the liturgical year, the last Sunday before Advent. Or at least, that's what most Catholics think. As Michael Foley uh, has demonstrated in the latest issue of Latin Mass magazine, quote, according to no less an authority than Pope Paul VI, the Feast of Christ the King was not merely moved, it was replaced. In the document announcing and explaining the new calendar, the Pope writes, The solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, occurs on the last Sunday of the liturgical year in place of the feast instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925 and assigned to the last Sunday of October. Now the key word is loco, which means in place of or instead of. Now Paul VI could have simply stated that the feast occurs on a different date, as he did with the Feast of the Holy Family, or that it's being moved uh, which the Latin word be, would be transfertur, uh, as he did with Corpus Christi, but he didn't. The Novus Ordo Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, he writes, is the replacement of Pius XI's, the replacement of Pius XI's Feast of Christ the King. So Paul VI actually abolished the Feast of Christ the King and replaced it with a solemnity fabricated by Concilium, the liturgy committee under Annabali Bunini. Now, those two celebrations obviously have things in common, but it's clearly not intended to be the same feast, just moved to a different Sunday. It was given a new name, a new date, also new propers, right? Readings and prayers, all of which de-emphasized the social reign of Christ the King and put in its place a cosmic and eschatological Christ. Now, why did that happen? Well, you know, I've been thinking about this for years, and the simplest answer to me seems to be that the, the Feast of Christ the King didn't fit with the spirit of Vatican II. Paul VI's integralism, right, which is generally speaking the belief that uh, your religious convictions should dictate your political and social actions, uh, and more specifically that that the Catholic faith should be the basis of public law and policy uh, in civil society. That that was an embarrassment to the Catholic progressives uh, and the ecumenism of the 1960s. Now, as, as Foley writes in his article, quote, the new feast guts the original feast of its intended meaning. The liturgical innovators kicked the can of Christ's reign down the road to the end of time so that it will no longer interfere with an easygoing accommodation to secularism, unquote. Now, um, what about all the saints over all the centuries that upheld the doctrine that, 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 that there shouldn't be uh, a total separation of church and state? You know, in a recent post on the 1 Peter 5 blog, um, Dr. Peter Klesnevsky, and I'll, you know, I'll put the link in the show notes, he provides a list of royal saints and blesseds as long as your arm. All the kings and queens and you know princes and princesses and so forth <clears throat> that have been made saints or, or blesseds in the church. And then he asks, does modern democracy have a track record of sanctity like that? Where are the dozens of holy presidents and prime ministers and cabinet members and congressmen and mayors? You know, t- to ask the question is to answer it. And then Dr. K says, 
This leads me back to Pope Paul VI's suppression of one feast of Christ the King and his creation of another. It seems to me that the original feast of Christ the King represents the Catholic vision of society as a hierarchy, with the private sphere and the public sphere united in their acknowledgement of the rights of God and his church. This vision was put aside in 1969 to make way for a vision in which Christ is king of my heart and the king of the cosmos, so of the most micro level and the most macro level, but, and these are Dr. Kosnevsky's words, not mine, but, he says, not king of anything in between, not king of culture, of society, of industry and trade, of education, of civil government. In other words, for such middling spheres, we have no king but Caesar. In a fallen world where all our political efforts are dogged by evil and doomed eventually to failure, the Christian monarchy is still the best political system that has ever been devised or could ever be devised. As we can infer from its much greater antiquity and universality, Monarchy is the system most natural to human beings as political animals. It is the system most akin to the supernatural government of the church. It is the system that lends itself most readily to collaboration and cooperation with the church in the salvation of men's souls. The two wisest men of pagan antiquity, Plato and Aristotle, maintained that democracy, far from being a stable form of government, is always teetering on the edge of anarchy or tyranny. Right now, he says, the prospects for Catholic monarchy seem dim, to say the least. But we ought to have the courage to admit that what we are doing is not working. That we're digging ourselves collectively into the deepest and darkest pit human history has ever seen. Compared to this, I would prefer to take my chances on monarchy and aristocracy and all of its checkered episodes It still has a proven track record of sanctity and defense of the faith. Nothing else does. So there you have it. Uh, He's not one to mince words. And I would suggest to you that he has a point. You know, it's been said that sometimes, you know, divine providence in a monarchy can at any time put on the throne an imbecile or a villain or an incompetent. But it has been said sometimes the king is Nero, but sometimes he's Marcus Aurelius. I would submit to you that the people are often Nero and never Marcus Aurelius. So, restored Christendom? A restored Catholic monarchy? Uh, What do you think? Does, Does it sound to you like that would take a miracle? Well, yeah, of course it would. (laughs) But uh, I believe in miracles. I wonder who amongst the early Christians, right, perhaps amongst those uh, that were in fear of going to the Colosseum to be eaten by lions, who lived under the constant threat of the Roman persecution, how many of them do you suppose believed that such a thing of Christendom was even possible? You see, the establishment of Christendom was a miracle. But it is a fact, an undeniable fact of history. And if it happened once, then it can happen again. We sang a hymn a week ago Sunday. 
to Jesus Christ, our sovereign King, who is the world's salvation. All praise and homage do we bring, and thanks and adoration. Thy reign extend, O King benign, to every land and nation, for in thy kingdom, Lord divine, alone we find salvation. To thee and to thy church, great King, we pledge our heart's oblation, until before thy throne we sing in endless jubilation, Christ Jesus, victor, Christ Jesus, ruler, Christ Jesus, Lord and Redeemer. Amen. And that's no nonsense. You know, for two millennia, the Holy Church has been the vanguard of true progress. Each and every hour of the day, the host and chalice are raised somewhere on the earth, and the Holy Sacrifice is celebrated around the clock and around the globe. At every Holy Mass, our Lord Jesus Christ turns back the clock all the way to the sacrifice of Calvary. In the sacrament of penance, Christ turns back the clock on our sins to restore our baptismal innocence, our our state of sanctifying grace. With his help, we can certainly turn back the clock on our modern madness and restore the sanity that only proceeds from sanctity. Now is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, it's that time again. Thank you so much for having been with us here. Uh, no Nonsense Catholic. We'll be back next week with lots more right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And got a special virtual conference coming up this Saturday, November the 7th. You can watch it live on YouTube starting at 9 a.m. Pacific time uh, right here from our Virgin Most Powerful studio. It's going to be showing uh, a whole series of documentaries Got uh, hosted by myself and Terry Barber will be with me live. And, of course, the... Uh, the What Every Catholic Needs to Know series about uh, the Bible and Mary and the papacy and hell. And uh, it's going to be me and Scott Hahn and Tim Staples and Steve Ray and Jesse Romero and Father Bill Casey and a host of others. So please uh, tune in. Join us. Uh, join us on the chat. I'm going to have the latitude to be keeping an eye on that, I hope, on Saturday. And we look very much uh, forward to you being with us. Until then, uh, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.